Welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Piancy, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, Mr. Bennett Tomlin. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Cass? Breathing heavy, trying to set this up uh, here at home. Um, and it's uh, been not the simplest procedure. It probably won't sound beautiful either, but uh, my new recording studio is taking longer than expected, so we'll make do for now. Today, we're talking about Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy. Not only has Michael gotten into a bit of hot water in relation to his taxes, but MicroStrategy has really not been doing very well over the past year or so. I don't know, there's a lot to talk about the history, the current situation, and why, in a sense, a lot of this could have been seen uh, when the buying of BTC started. So, Bennett, why don't you go ahead and get us started? Well, I was going to say that I think the most logical place for us to start is probably with the part about Michael Saylor that our audience is going to know the least about, which is his encounters with the SEC and with MicroStrategy earlier in the 2000s. And you wrote an article about that, Cass. So could you actually give us a little bit of background on Michael Saylor's history before we get to the part of the story where he begins buying absurd amounts of Bitcoin with leverage? I, there's a longer version of this. So I'm going to go ahead and tell the short version because I think the shorter version can get us started and can get us to a place where the, the more thorough explanation of, of what happened can be understood. But basically... MicroStrategy was formed in the late 1990s and was a premium stock during the dot-com bubble. It, I, I'm not exactly sure what the exact number was, but it did multiples. Uh, and I think it went up to something like $350, $400 a share from, I think it, it IPO'd at, at $6, something like that. There we go, now I have it. It, it went all the way up to $333 a share. Um, from its uh, IPO price of $6. So it shot up, it rocketed in, up in price, which was a pretty common theme in the late 1990s, early aughts. Unfortunately, what occurred with MicroStrategy and Michael Saylor was that after this huge uptick in their price, there was accounting fraud, which is a common theme when it comes to the dot-com bubble and 1990s, uh, late 1990s stocks in general. Accounting fraud was uh, rampant. You look at Enron, you look at WorldCom. This was uh, Price uh, PwC, um, PricewaterhouseCoopers. And honestly, they played a bigger factor and role in this than MicroStrategy. Nonetheless, the price plummeted back down to earth after that. And a lot of the issues were attributed to Michael Saylor's kind of reckless behavior. What they did was they misstated their profits and their margins in general during the 1999 uh, quarterlies and it deeply affected their stock. And up until that point, I believe it was the largest single day stock loss in US history. Um, that has been surpassed now, I think by Meta actually, but um, in, in terms of value lost, but it, it was one of the largest losses Ever. We've talked about like when we did our Enron episode with David Z. Morris about how part of what Enron was doing was getting real tricksy with how they recognized their revenue, right? To try to recognize revenue that was 
not as guaranteed as they wanted to pretend it was. And that was part of what Michael Saylor was doing as well, right, is that they were recognizing revenue from deals that had just immediately been inked and even deals that had not been completely signed yet in order to try to maintain the illusion that they were this profitable enterprise during the dot-com bubble. And I think this is important now in the context of microstrategy in 2022. We talked about this a little bit when Francine McKenna was on, is that Michael Saylor had another little run-in with the SEC recently surrounding his accounting treatment of his assets again, where the SEC had to tell him that the way MicroStrategy was trying to report their Bitcoin holdings was not appropriate and that they were going to need to mark them to market. And so like right now today on September 20th, we're looking at MicroStrategy having marked to market losses on their Bitcoin of about $1.5 billion. And so uh, I think that it's important to start with that part of Michael Saylor's history, his accounting shenanigans back in the dot-com bubble, because the SEC seems concerned that he might still be up to some accounting shenanigans. Yeah, I mean, we might as well get specific about what he did in the late 90s. Uh, He left contracts blank so that he could fill them in later. Uh, and basically reach quarterly estimates. He would count sales for service as sales for software, and he would do um, barter transactions as sales. Uh, So all of this stuff is, you know, legally, uh, well, one, not allowed, but two, uh, I think it's understood. Accountants should know better uh, than to allow that kind of stuff to happen. So that's what happened in the 90s. They forced MicroStrategy to correct those quarterly earnings. Um, once they were restated, they were restated significantly lower and got rid, almost instantly got rid of all of their profits. And that nearly bankrupted MicroStrategy. It definitely wasn't illegal enough to say, force Michael Saylor to never work as a, a the CEO or executive of any form for a publicly traded company, it did harm the MicroStrategy name, and then they had to sell junk bonds to cover um, the fines and all of that stuff. So uh, it wasn't good. It was very reckless. And when I wrote my piece uh, three years ago, two, three years ago now, my my point was not that anything, Michael Saylor was gonna do anything illegal, but that he clearly had a reckless drive, that he was willing to make careless, reckless kind of decisions to reach whatever goals he deemed necessary. So in the context of Michael Saylor being the kind of person willing to bet it all to reach whatever goals he thinks are necessary, let's talk about how he has transformed what's ostensibly a business intelligence corporation into a leveraged investment vehicle for Bitcoin, where he has converted all the spare cash in his company's treasury into Bitcoin and has now taken out multiple bonds through multiple different subsidiaries and stuff to continually double down on this Bitcoin bet. Currently, marked to market down about $1.5 billion, but that didn't stop. Michael Saylor today from purchasing another $6 million worth. It's unclear how much a $6 million purchase is going to help against $1.5 billion in losses, but Michael Saylor will persist until the heat death of the universe. Yeah, he's been making some pretty amazing comments uh, over the course of this all. Uh, he also clearly does like a quote a day where he <laughs> he takes from his quote a day calendar and just inserts the word Bitcoin into the quote, which is annoying. But to be fair, he doesn't have very many original thoughts. And so taking it from the calendar (laughs) helps. 
Well, I mean, let's be fair, though. Uh, originality. I, I, I do think that what he has decided to do with MicroStrategy is original. It's true. Um, it is unique. Um, I, I don't know if it is a good idea. Uh, it's essentially, I mean, as, as you said, I think MicroStrategy has become more or less a, a Bitcoin ETF. Um, it's it's it doesn't. No one cares about its business anymore. I I, I was trying to make this point to some uh, Bitcoin maximalists today. A, a person who's taking their excess individual excess funds that they've been saving and decides to put them into Bitcoin and is willing to hold on to that Bitcoin, let's say forever, that they're going to pass this on to their children or their children's children or, you know, whatever. That's fine. Like, I'm not going to tell someone, it's like somebody who, it's like Peter Schiff and his gold bet, you know, it's like, okay, like if your only concern in life is inflation or whatever, I guess you can do whatever you want. I'm not going to tell you how to spend your money. But when you're a business, uh, and you and you make this decision to purchase an asset and hold it um, indefinitely. Obviously, the goal then is that this asset needs to appreciate in value, either so you can take out loans against it or so that you can sell it, make a profit, and use the money to reinvest in your company. But essentially what Michael Saylor, I mean, he's taken out debt against his company, but the value of the Bitcoin is not appreciated. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like we talked about with Frank Musi uh, in El Salvador with the Bitcoin bond, where for a while they talked about having Lajeo, the local small electricity provider, be the issuer of the bond and take on this Bitcoin. And what it ended up doing is fundamentally transforming Lajeo's balance sheet. And so it effectively became this weird Bitcoin thing instead of really an electricity provider. And that's what Michael Saylor has done with MicroStrategy. He's transformed it into this leverage bet on Bitcoin that isn't an ETF, doesn't follow the same regulations as an ETF, isn't a registered like fund or that, is ostensibly a business that has clients and sells software and pays employees. But its balance sheet is overshadowed by this massive leverage bet on Bitcoin. And Saylor, from the position of CEO, has basically argued this was our only choice. We couldn't reinvest in our business because obviously Bitcoin is better than our business, is effectively what he said on Laura Shin's Unchained podcast. A business is two pieces, uh, your right hand, your left hand. The right hand is your P&L. Your left hand is your balance sheet. Okay, so you can grow the business by growing the P&L 20% a year or 30 or 50 or 100% a year if you're genius. That's, that's hard, yeah. but I mean, you can do it that way. You can also accumulate shareholder value by growing the balance sheet by 10, 20, 30% a year. If you told me Bitcoin was going to grow by 20% a year, I would think, by the way, if you're going to grow by 20% a year and you have $2 billion on your balance sheet, then you're going to generate $400 million in in investment income or or uh, or shareholder wealth in the twelve months, that's a lot easier than doubling. Well, if we doubled the revenue of the company, we still couldn't do that, right? Right. Like we would have to increase the revenue of the company by a factor of five. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you know, there you can compete that way or compete the other way. I mean, some people, you know, some people kind of get irked, like it's like you're cheating by making money an easy way. Is that it would have hurt our shareholders for me to try to use this money to grow micro strategy because I can't grow micro strategy, but Bitcoin is never gonna. I don't see Bitcoin as having a downturn. Is another thing he said. Expect an eighty percent downturn. I don't think it's a speculative asset, and I don't think 
you can you can quote unquote take money off the table and so i see it as going like up and up and up forever and so when you think like that technically superior asset class compared to the dollar the euro the peso the bolivar compared to a stock index compared to gold compared to silver compared to everything you can conceivably buy it is technically thermodynamically superior as an asset and when like sailor you have enough shares to vote things however you want you end up transforming your publicly traded business intelligence company into a levered bitcoin thing and that's weird bitcoin's the best crypto asset okay what's the second best there is no second best there's no second best crypto asset. There's a crypto asset. It's called Bitcoin, right? And not only is it weird, but I, as I'm as I, stating again, like businesses need cash flow. Like to be a successful business, you need cash flow. You need cash in and cash out. Like even if you're I, like a lot of companies operate at a loss for a significant period of time. Right. But what they're doing is they're making sales. They're doing things that are bringing in money, even if they're costing them money to to bring that money in. And if you're giving up on your primary cash flow and your new purpose is as a vehicle for a, a let, let's say a commodity, right? We'll call it a commodity, a vehicle for a commodity. It kind of hog ties you and it does. And now you're depending on that commodity to go up in value because not only are you spot buying this thing, but you are making levered bets, as you said, right? Because he has taken out bonds to accomplish these purchases. Yes, yes. And like, we talked about this a little bit when James Seifert was on discussing the Bitcoin ETF, where like, the <laughs> the SEC's failure with MicroStrategy has effectively become like, at multiple levels, right? Like Sailor didn't get a DNO ban in 2000. And so because of that, he's still able to be a director and officer of this company right. and do all these things. The SEC has not approved a spot Bitcoin ETF. And so MicroStrategy becomes a more compelling option for investors who want spot exposure to Bitcoin, despite the fact that it's a dumb way to get that investment, right? And so like, because the SEC has been trying to use the Bitcoin ETF as leverage so that they can get surveillance agreements with all the exchanges and gain de facto regulatory control over the crypto industry, they have allowed MicroStrategy to take this strange position and suck up this part of the market while still allowing Sailor with this history of dubious accounting practices to continue to operate in that way. And so, yeah, Sailor says wild things. There is no second best. Things and Sailor does dumb things. But our current regulatory and enforcement apparatus has created an environment where Sailor doing those things is good for Sailor and possibly good for MicroStrategy. And while not necessarily good for consumers, it is providing something to consumers that there is otherwise no way for them to necessarily have access to. Not that I would ever, if you want exposure to Bitcoin, that would be the last way I would suggest you try to seek it out. But um, for traditional finance folks, uh, it might in some sense look attractive. So it, it is it is a big regulatory failure. That's absolutely what it is. Uh, and I hadn't necessarily considered that aspect of it, but but it absolutely is a, a regulatory failure. And it, and it sucks that, yeah, the way that traditional finance people have to seek out any exposure to this, whether on the upside or downside, is to, <laughs> is to invest in either companies like MicroStrategy, which have pivoted from a 
small but at least defined business to a commodity holding company um, or like, you know, blockchain mining companies, which seem to fail all the time. Um, uh, So who have to basically constantly be buying but have to sell high um, and not sell low. It has made it incredibly difficult for traditional consumers to have that exposure that they would want. I guess there's more options now with things like Robinhood and the gamification of finance, allowing people to have exposure to just Bitcoin or Ethereum or or these other other things without having to buy an ETF um, or whatever. But uh, can't. I would assume you wouldn't want to have a large position on Robin Hood or whatever. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't. And yeah. before we move on from some of these Bitcoin buys, I just want to really pause and emphasize for a moment how strange it is that the chief executive officer at the time, an executive chairman of a corporation, said the best way for us to return capital to shareholders is not to do a stock buyback. We don't think MicroStrategy is undervalued. We don't want to buy more of our own stock. Was not to do a dividend. Was not to give this cash directly back to consumers. Was not to invest in growing MicroStrategy. He explicitly said he wasn't sure that was a worthwhile thing to do and was instead for him to go out and purchase Bitcoin to effectively prop trade the entire corporation's balance sheet. Well, well, we have cash. We're going to have cash. You can't use cash to grow the company anymore. <clears throat> what can you do with the cash? You can either buy the stock back, you can dividend it back to the shareholders, or you can invest it. What are you going to invest it in? Well, how about uh, an asset inflation hedge that you, you can't make any more of, pure monetary energy? Was the best way for him to return capital to shareholders is effectively what he said in the Unchained interview. And that is a very strange thing for an executive to say about the corporation they run. Like when you really get down to it, to say that our ability to produce things, to earn value, is less than the ability of this asset to accrue value. That no matter how hard we work, we are worse than this asset is a telling thing for an executive to say. Well, I think what it boils down to is his, uh, they, these are convictions that this guy. There is no second best. Giving him essentially the benefit of the doubt by saying this is to suggest that he is religious. He is a religious zealot about Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, faith absolutely blinds you. Um, and so I think the things that come out of his mouth from, you know, uh, mortgage your house and buy Bitcoin to... Um, Bitcoin is cyber hornets. <laughs> all of it. Uh, and then and then to continue to say this stuff while you're being uh, charged with tax fraud, um, it's, just, it's just kind of crazy to me, the amount of... Essentially, fi- it's financial advice. Like, I, I don't know how else to, to describe it other than it, it's basically financial advice, what he's suggesting. Um... And yeah, like like you said, it's it, it's a guy who says my business is not as worthwhile as this religion that I follow. Um, it's like he doesn't want to be in the the uh, publicly traded business world anymore. Um, and who knows? Maybe with the continuing 
devaluation of Bitcoin, uh, that could be a very real possibility. Well, he is no longer the chief executive of a business intelligence company, right? He stepped down. But I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that because I don't think he, I don't think that, I don't think he stepped down in, in, I don't think it was because, I think the reasoning at the time was that he didn't need to be there for day-to-day operations anymore. But suspiciously, that happened two, three weeks before the tax uh, fraud uh, thing was announced. And, um... And yeah, I just, I just, I'm curious if he knew, I'm curious if he knew what was coming and decided it would be best if he decided, if he stepped away as CEO. But I also know that he's still, he's the chairman of the board and holds all the controlling interest of this company. So it really doesn't mean much. No, it really doesn't. And let's talk about the uh, alleged tax evasion for a moment, because it is a fun story. So recently, the the uh, Washington, D.C. Attorney General announced that they were going after Sailor for possible income tax evasion. And what's really interesting about it is that it's based on a whistleblower tip. Someone in Sailor's social circle or something like that determined that he was not paying income taxes in D.C., but was spending more than half of his days there, which means he's supposed to be paying his income taxes in D.C. And this person who knows Sailor and heard Sailor brag, allegedly, about trying to evade these taxes, reported him in order to get the whistleblower rewards. And so now Sailor is looking at having to explain why he hasn't paid any income taxes in D.C. in like the last decade. And the additional wrinkle is that there's a whole bunch of other um, Silicon Valley and other billionaires who have moved to Florida recently in a lot the same Mm. way Sailor has. And I wonder how Mm. many of them are spending at least half of the total days of the calendar year at their Florida houses. Yeah, you got to have some serious enemies um, for people to um, be willing to, to... take you out for something like that. It's so strange to me because we keep talking about this. Like, if you're going to do something illegal, we talked about it with uh, with the North Korea, um, what's his Griffith. name? Thank you, Virgil Griffith. Um, we talked about it. We've talked about it just just for all the criminals. So we talked about it with um, Reginald Fowler and just, just, it's just embarrassing that these people do these incredibly illegal things and like the one thing you don't do is brag about the illegal things you're doing. Don't don't brag about it. Just don't talk about it. And instead, they have to talk about it. They have to. It's like that part in the wire about the uh, the paper trail. Is you taking notes on a criminal fucking conspiracy? What the fuck is you thinking, man? <laughs> right. That they all feel compelled. And like we can go back to uh, Silk Road and we talked about it with Nicholas Weaver, right? Is that he had this entire log on his computer describing all of his illegal actions and like who he was doing them with and like time stamps for all the illegal things he did. And like there were other problems with that prosecution. Let's not pretend it was perfect. But like there are a shocking number of these individuals who, for example, brag about their new house in D.C. while claiming to tax authorities they live in Florida. And another great example was uh, like Razzle Khan with her bag that was labeled burner phone. Like, 
you can't remember that it's your burner phone. That's not something you can't just what remember. Did you think I mean, the Ziploc with nine cell phones in it was. <laughs> oh, you know, I so so that that's I. Criminals are clearly sloppy, um, or at least I guess the ones that get caught are sloppy. We don't know how many are actually doing a really bang up job of not announcing their criminal actions and then not getting caught for them. So so maybe there's plenty of that going on too. And props I mean, to those people who can shut their fucking mouths. We kind of do, because every few years, one of their law firms end up having a bunch of their files turned over to the ICIJ, and then we go, oh my god, all these people are silently committing tax evasion and all these other financial crimes, but they sure. were getting away with it because they were silent, and they continue to get away with it because our society is structurally bad at prosecuting that kind of thing. Right. I think MicroStrategy and Sailor are a fascinating example of like how how history doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes, and that you didn't need to be a genius to look at the way Michael Saylor conducted himself and his business before all of this Bitcoin buying happened to realize that there's probably going to be some issues down the road here. Even if, God bless, there weren't any, um, the way he goes about doing that business is in incredibly reckless. Um, well, and, and that that's proven true. And I just want to emphasize that I think Michael Saylor is a really bad thing for Bitcoin. Like, even ignoring the fact that he's concentrated this much at the stake, he's become such an important figurehead. And he says such shockingly dumb things. Like, we talk about a little bit back in episode 21, the reason you and I found Bitcoin interesting and still continue to find Bitcoin interesting is that there was this compelling and somewhat unique vision of this censorship-resistant transfer of value, right? And that's a thing that not a lot of other things can claim they've got the ability to do. And Bitcoin's not flawless in that regard, but that's what makes it interesting and valuable. But Michael Saylor, in interviews and stuff, tells people who, like, says that he doesn't care about that anarcho-capitalist stuff. And he thinks that they should celebrate all these institutions coming in. All the crypto anarchists will be freaked out that there's some regulation. And all the people at BlackRock and Pemco and Fidelity that have more money than God will say, OK, well, it's safe now. We might as well buy 100 billion of it. <laughs> right. You know, what I say to the crypto anarchist is, why don't you just get along with the institutions and the corporations for now, hold your nose. And when you've made billions of dollars or tens of billions, <laughs> take all your money, buy an island, start your own country and do it your way. And that they're benefiting from Wall Street owning more and more of the Bitcoin. And it just seems so antithetical to all the things that make Bitcoin interesting, that all, all the things that make Bitcoin potentially worthwhile. Michael Saylor stands opposed to basically all of them, except tax evasion. <laughs> He'll probably start being opposed to more and more stuff as these charges get... Uh, move forward. Um, maybe, but, he'll, maybe he'll go full Patrick Byrne and start tweeting about the deep state. I. I hope so. I hope I, I do. I, I, I hope I hope that is true. Um, but I don't know what the commentary is here other than we we have never done a full episode on Michael Saylor. I don't think either one of us expects him to, you know, do jail time or expects him to. I don't even think he necessarily I don't think he necessarily 
bankrupts MicroStrategy or uh, anything like that. He brings a lot of attention to himself, and it's always for kind of questionable decision-making, I think. Listen, this shit is cyclical. There's a good chance Bitcoin will go back up, MicroStrategy will be back in the green, and they'll be okay. Or alternatively, it's like... As we mentioned, Michael Saylor has the controlling shares. They have enough assets they can push their liquidation price down into the 3000s if they need to. If Michael Saylor stays in control and stays committed to Bitcoin, there is no second best. He can ride it, and as long as it doesn't hit that liquidation price, he might make it out okay. It is just, yeah. I think, fundamentally stupid to transform a business intelligence firm into this weird special purpose entity thing for investing in Bitcoin. It is like regulatorily not how that type of thing is supposed to be structured. And as a business, it is often the interests of the thing you're holding can and will often run like counter to the interests of growing the core business. And so it, it's just stupid it doesn't mean it's not going to work. Stupid things work all the time. It doesn't mean they're not stupid. It speaks volumes as to, like you said before, his confidence in his own company, which is to suggest he doesn't have any confidence in it. That's why he's gone and made it something completely different than what it it has been for 20 plus years. I would say you're right in that maybe it Maybe one day it has to go private, or maybe who knows what ends up happening to it in the end. But you can't, as a publicly traded company, have that same low time preference that Bitcoiners always tell tell everyone else they need to have. Like, oh, who cares if it's trading at 20,000 right now when in 10 years it'll be worth a million or 10 million or 100 million? Um, well, when you're a business and you have to pay employees, and you have to pay down debts, and you have to literally take care of business every day, you, not all of your time preference can be about what's going to happen in a decade. Um, for you as an individual, it can. But this is why centering your business around an asset that is supposed to be the new gold, it's not viable, really. This is a very dumb decision. It's not viable. I don't know. Having some gold or some some Bitcoin or some whatever, some some asset in reserves for a company, I guess, as a hedge could be fine if it's a very small percentage. But fine. that is not fine. that is not at all what is happening here. Um, and uh, yeah, it hasn't worked out so far. So listen, like Square slash Block, whatever you want to call Jack Dorsey's company, uh, they put a small percentage of their balance sheet in Bitcoin. They are working on Bitcoin. I don't know that it's the best corporate decision ever, but I think it's a totally defensible one, right? Tesla putting their money into Bitcoin, a bit more dumb and a bit less defensible. MicroStrategy, like you said, isn't doing that. They are selling millions and millions of dollars, actively trying to sell another half a billion dollars in bonds so that they can continue to just warp their balance sheet. Yeah. Uh, it stinks. You know what it stinks of is kind of like a three arrows capital super cycle bullshit um, number has to go up. And because of that faith, it will go up. And that unfortunately isn't how markets actually work. And like in the sorry, in the Lorishan interview that Michael Saylor did back in at the beginning of 2021, he said like he couldn't even imagine 
Bitcoin going through an 80% drawdown. I don't expect an 80% downturn. Right. And we peaked this cycle at what, 64? And I've already hit a low of like 18, which is like what, a 70% drawdown? Like, he clearly is not structurally thinking. He's not thinking clearly and coherently about the risks and about the about how things could go wrong. And that's just clear by the amount of embedded leverage he's creating. That's it. Yeah, that's the difference. That's the big difference. And I think it, it that the advice of really, unless you know exactly what you're doing um, and you know how to hedge, and that's the reason you're using leverage and options trading, um, then, okay, that's fine. But if you're just using leverage to gamble, uh, it's the same advice I would give to any person, which is don't do that. <laughs> um, so I, I think that the same advice would go for micro strategy. It's like, there's no need. There is absolutely no need to uh, do this. We'll see what happens. I get bad, I get bad juju <laughs> about, um, about the future for sailor and micro strategy. It's going to be a bumpy ride. I think there's no doubt about that. Who knows Who knows if it's a winning ride or not, but it's going to be a bumpy one. Join us again soon when I leverage my entire life savings on some Bitcoin um, to keep this podcast going because we have no way of doing it otherwise. I am just going to be doing a highly levered bet of a minimal amount of money and, and crossing my fingers for the best. Hopefully, uh, SBF buys some... Buy some Bitcoin, please buy some Bitcoin. There is no second best.